Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 38. In this episode, we will be hearing from Stephen Vance, who is taking a break from his psalm study to provide us with an episode tied to the current unrest and injustice in our world. The title of his message is, Why So Much Suffering in the World? We trust this message will be timely for all of us that are hurting. Today, our topic is a, is a heart-wrenching, difficult topic. We're asking the question, why so much suffering in the world? And uh, our, our whole world is, in a, is a time of, of big trial, a lot of job loss, economic downturn, health, and issues of living. And then over uh, recent weeks, uh, we've all had etched in our minds the, the story of, of George Floyd and why things like this happen and why can't our society uh, be better. I was, I was moved uh, to read in Christianity Today uh, the words of Patrick Longo, who's a pastor in, in Houston, and he spoke about George Floyd, that 46-year-old uh, who was uh, killed May 25th. We all know the words, I can't breathe. And yet the backstory of this man was that he was a person, the pastor said, of peace. that was sent from the Lord to help the gospel go forward in a place, this pastor said, that I never lived in. And he was known as reaching out to people who were vulnerable and, 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 and leading them uh, to openness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our heart cries out, why do things like this happen? This is a real question, an important question for us to think about. And the text I've chosen to think about is actually going to take us to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we read, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You know, this question of why there's so much suffering in the world, it's been around for a long time. The children of Israel, uh, the Jewish people, were traveling through the desert, and uh, in Exodus 17, they asked, is the Lord really among us? They were going through a tough time, no water. And they began to complain. They wondered, is the Lord really among us? And even our Savior on the cross, going through his pain and suffering, asked the question, why, God, did you forsake me? And so we want to ask this question in this uh, session, why so much suffering in the world? We live in a, a world of, of all kinds of, of suffering. There's, there's starvation, there's sorrow, there's pain, there's death. And you've seen the, the pictures of starving children, their emaciated bodies. And, and why does God allow this? But it's not just, it's not just these global topics. Suffering is also a, a, a personal topic for each one of us. We have our our own struggles with why God allows things in our life. My own journey over the last uh, couple of years with my mom's uh, cancer and, and death, and then earlier my wife and I struggling uh, through our, our baby child Matthew's death. And all of us have our own story of pain, and why does God 
allow these things. And we ask, what on earth is God doing? And sometimes it seems like he's not doing very much. So as we go through this topic, I want you to uh, you just follow me through. Some of these reasons and ideas that I'm going to present are, are going to be for the mind. But others of them, especially near the end, are going to be for the emotions and for uh, the heart. And the first point that I want to make is that a lot of evil that happens in the world and a lot of bad things that happen in the world are, are clearly uh, not God's fault at all. It's actually our own human sinfulness that is in play. And so Matthew 15 and 19 says, it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. You see, God has made us as responsible human beings with the power of choice to obey or to disobey. And so a lot of evil is, is not God's fault. And even in the, the present situation, I mean, we, we don't know all the, the causes of COVID, but uh, it's possible that there were, you know, human factors and, and, and hopefully society will be able to figure out what went wrong and to, and to rectify it. And then with the very sad situation and racism and George Floyd, of course, there was human, uh, human evil that raised its ugly head in that situation. Of course, some will say, why does God not stop it? Why doesn't he step in before it gets really bad? And, and the answer, again, uh, is that God has given us the ability to choose to do right or wrong. And if he, he stepped in afterwards and always stopped evil things, he would be violating this basic human principle that he has established. If you imagine, for example, a world in which every time you shot a gun at somebody, God vaporized the bullet, then that action of shooting a bullet at somebody would no longer be evil. It would be because God always stepped in and prevented it. By God giving us the ability to, to, to sin and to choose and to rebel, he has allowed this possibility of evil. And this is something that we own. The next point that I want to make is not just that a lot of evil is not God's fault, but evil in an interesting, ironic way actually indirectly points back to a God of goodness. And hear me out on this. It's interesting. Uh, just over the last uh, week and a half, many of us have probably watched the memorial service for our brother Ravi Zacharias, and we've grieved at the loss of a great Christian thinker. And his thinking... Uh, can man live without God and deliver us from evil was what first introduced me to these ideas, and I've been really helped by it. Because you see, when we look at evil in the world, let's remember it's not just Christians that have to deal with this problem. So do atheists. And how do they grapple with evil uh, in this world? You see, when we see that evil is in this world, we also see that by contrast, there is, there is good. Not everything is evil. There are things that are evil and there are things that are good. But as soon as we put those labels on certain things, we're also acknowledging that there's some principle or some method, some law by which we are able to distinguish between good and evil. 
But if we follow it back then and evil leads us to good and good leads us to a law that distinguishes them, every other law has a law maker, a law giver, a law designer. And so the question then is, who is the law giver who has designed the categories between good and evil? The Christian answer is that this lawgiver is, is God. And of course, there are some parts of this are blurry, but when we take uh, sort of the most fundamental examples, think of the value of life and the evil of murder. This is something that's acknowledged uh, across the world in all societies that, that murder is, is wrong. There is a, a law, and not just a law made by humans, but a law acknowledged underneath it all within our human conscience that murder is evil. Some people, of course, will say, well, this is just a utilitarian thing, that societies who adopted murder discovered that in time this is not helpful for their societies. But I'd like to suggest to you that that actually that's not what we mean when we say that murder is wrong. We're not saying that it's just not beneficial. We're actually saying that there's something that rises within us when a baby is killed or when a, a vulnerable person or anybody is killed that something has gone wrong, something rises in our hearts that this is evil and our moral code has been violated. It's not just utilitarian. There is moral goodness and moral evil, and God is the author of these unchanging categories. Of course, there are some things that do change over time, but moral codes like murder and things like that, these are fixed in the character and the laws of God. But as we approach this topic of suffering and we discover a lot of evil is not God's fault and evil in a philosophical way points indirectly back to a God of goodness, now I want you to come to the, the Bible's answer to this. Why then? It's not just a philosophical issue. This is a, a, real, a real dilemma. And how do we come to understand if there really is a God of goodness? How could evil have ever emerged in this world? And of course, for the answer to this question, we need to turn to the history of Scripture. And the Scripture answer is that God made the world good, very good. And there in Edom, Adam was there and he was very good, but he was given that power of choice. What is he going to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit from it that was prohibited? And he made his choice and he disobeyed and he rebelled. And the Bible's history is that because of Adam's disobedience, the earth was brought under a curse. Romans 5 and 19 puts it this way. Through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. Adam rebelled and we became sinners as a result. It goes on to say that through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. But the Bible's answer to this problem of evil is that yes, some evil comes from sin that we all share as members of the human race. And general evil comes as a a secondary byproduct that when sin came into the world, God cursed the earth as a consequence. And so, yes, 
Yes, there are famines and pestilences and all sorts of disasters. We call them natural disasters. They are not necessarily the byproduct of actual sin that, you know, the people who are experiencing a famine have sinned, but rather it is this global sense that our human race is sinful and so we live in a cursed world. Now, if this seems a little bit unfair to those of us uh, raised in the West, we're very independent in our thinking. We need to remember that the scriptures were given in a more Eastern collectivist sort of society. And in this type of an approach, we understand that membership in the group not only brings benefits, but it also brings problems. And in fact, we know this, even in our individualistic West, we know that being a member of a group, we experience the consequences of that membership. Take, for example, alcoholism. If you are in an alcoholic family, you may not be the alcoholic, but you experience the byproduct. And, and you are part of that family system that has, has, has you know, continued that situation. Think of other examples, not just a family. If you're a member of a church where there's a dictatorial uh, government, you will experience negative consequences. If you're in a cheap company, you will have consequences for being part of that group. And so it is in the human family. It may not seem fair at first, but it is true. Our membership in the human race means that we are part of a cursed family. Thankfully, this is not just a negative message. As I pointed out in Romans 5, although we are made sinners by our membership in the human family, we can be made righteous by membership in the family of God. And this is the grace of God that says without us needing to do a single thing, by grace we can participate in God's love and his salvation. You see, the Bible's answer seems to be that in the Garden of Eden, Adam was our representative. He was our head. And in that Garden of Eden, when he failed, it affected us. But the reason was he was representing us. Had we been there, we would have done exactly the same and so remember this, as you think about all the evil in the world, whether it is human sin that has caused it, remember, that's not God's fault. That's your fault and mine when we have sinned. Remember that evil points indirectly to a God of goodness who has organized these categories. But remember the, the broad history of, of humankind that evil came into the world through Adam, who was our representative and curse came as a result. But I want you to think now for the last bit how God redeems suffering. We've seen the causes of suffering in human sinfulness and in, in, in Adam's sin that brought about this curse, but I want you to see that God is not a God just of judgment. He is a God of redemption. And so the scriptures remind us that God is going to, in the future, redeem suffering in a glorious future kingdom. Revelation 21 and 4 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more. 
You see, God made the world good, and he is going to restore it to that. He is going to bring it back to that. And this is the promise of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died on the cross, we are allowed to participate in God's kingdom and in God's purposes, and we will one day share in that kingdom that has no suffering. I'm reminded of a, a beautiful little story that James Dobson tells. He was practicing in a, a hospital, and there was a, a five-year-old boy dying of lung cancer. His mother was a believer, and it was so painful for her to watch her, her, her boy suffering. One night, she went home, and, and the boy was starting to speak over and over again, and the nurses heard, heard him say, I hear the bells. I hear the bells. They're ringing all through the night, he said this. The next morning, the mother came in and asked the nurses at the station how the boy was doing. And, and they said, you know, he's hallucinating. Keeps talking about hearing bells. It's probably the medication. She, she turned to the nurses. She said, you listen to me. He's not hallucinating. I told him a few weeks ago that when the pain got so bad that he couldn't breathe, I told him that he's going up to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus. She said, I told him when it gets really bad, just look into the corner of your room and listen for the bells. They'll be ringing for you. She went down the hall into the, the room with her little boy there, and she picked him up. She held him in her arms and rocked him. And he talked about the bells until they were just an echo. And he went to be with Jesus. Because you see, this world isn't the final word, the final say. There is a kingdom coming of peace and joy and love. But you know, that seems far off. Why do we have to wait for that coming kingdom for redemption? And so now I want you not to think just of the future kingdom and its redemption, but of redemption in the present time. Because the message of the scriptures is that God is also able to partially redeem our suffering through present character growth. This is the universal message of Scripture. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, those memorable words. What does he say? You know the words. He says we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And his message is that suffering produces something. Perseverance, character, hope. And we probably all had this experience. The times of the greatest growth in our life have often been times when we've gone through the greatest difficulty. It's an irony. And we don't like it that way at times. And yet it's also true. There is, as Dr. Paul Brand said, a gift in pain. 
We know this in the natural realm. He studied leprosy patients and discovered that the problem in leprosy is that the nervous system is deadened. They can't feel. And so they injure themselves and then don't pay attention to their injuries. There is a gift to pain, so said Dr. Paul Brand. But he applied it spiritually, that sometimes God gives us in our pain a gift. And some of the lessons we learn and the growth that we experience, we could never experience in any other way. Bruce Waltke is a, a theologian and a, a Bible student, and he tells a very interesting story. He was studying in, in Dallas, and, and he and his daughter were taking a walk through the forest, and they, they came upon a very interesting sight. It was a, an almost-born butterfly. A little cocoon was, was spinning and spinning, and part of the wing was already out. And, and, and Bruce Walke sort of bent down on the ground with his daughter to look at it. And, and she turned to him and said, Daddy, it's struggling to get out. And Bruce thought, well, I'll help it along. And so he reached down carefully and gently, took the bottom of the cocoon and split it to let the butterfly out. But it dropped like a blob and killed the butterfly. And here's what Bruce Waltke said as he reflected on that situation afterwards. He said, here's the lesson. Butterflies need the struggle of emergence to survive. Sometimes that's what we need. And in the struggle, we learn and we grow. And this is God's plan for our life. And so, God will completely redeem suffering for his children in the future glorious kingdom, but he can partially redeem suffering in the present by our character growth. But I want to end this message by considering with you the present, the past, actually. Because sometimes the future seems too far off, and in the present we don't see much growth in our character, and this is where I want to take you to the past. And I want you to think about the cross of the Lord Jesus and what that cross meant, because our text today says that Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has shown us that he is, as Moltmann said, the suffering God. He has embraced suffering. He has not avoided suffering, but he has come down here to this world to suffer alongside of his human creation and in the end to suffer for us on the cross. This scripture reminds us that he didn't deserve to suffer at all. We learned earlier that we suffer sometimes because of our own sin and sometimes because we are part of a broken and sinful world. But Jesus was none of that. He had no sin in him and he did not deserve, he did, had not done anything to deserve membership in a fallen world. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was spotless. 
but he suffered nonetheless. He willingly embraced suffering. Why was it? Why was it? I love what John Stott says about this topic, and I'm going to quote him at length. I've had a similar experience to him uh, in Eastern countries looking at statues of the, of the Buddha, and I want you to enter into these words. John Stott says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. Think of these words as you think of our current distress. The only God I believe in, says Stott, is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He goes on, and I identify. I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I have had to turn away, and in imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. And I would add, he suffered with us. Our suffering, Stott continues, become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering. Why does God allow it? But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. That's what we need today. Why so much suffering in the world? We have seen a lot of evil is not God's fault, it's our human sinfulness. We have seen that evil points indirectly to God's goodness. We have seen that, that the general evil of the world is traced to human brokenness and the curse resulting from Adam's disobedience in which we also participated since he was our representative. But we've not just looked to the past. We've seen God's redemption in the future kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the present as he transforms our character. But we've looked to the past, and in the cross of Christ, we have seen a Savior who died for our sins and a sympathizer who suffers alongside of us. We've all experienced it in a difficult time. What helps us get through? is a friend that sticks close and understands. That's what Jesus offers us through the cross. He says, I've gone through it. My own suffering on your account, I understand you and I love you. I love the poem called Jesus of the Scars by Edward Shalito, who was a, an English minister 
who had survived the horrors of World War I. And here's what he wrote. He said, if we have never sought thee, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rolled, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. And in our suffering, look with hope to the future glory. Look to the present with joy and rejoicing that he is transforming us. But when all of that seems too hard and too far away, look to the cross and see a Savior who sympathized with us and suffered alongside of us. You see, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of the cross. What does our scripture tell us? It says Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He is our Savior. He suffered for our sins, the things that we have done, the evil that we had done. He had never done it. But he took the rap for us, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. But not only did he suffer for what we've done, he suffered for who we are. He suffered the just for the unjust. His suffering was for sins, and his suffering was for the unjust. Christ died for the ungodly, for us when we were sinners. But the wonderful news of the gospel is not just that he suffered for sins and for the unjust, but his sufferings are over forever. He has suffered and he has said it is finished. His work is done. His kingdom is coming. Redemption is on the way. And for those of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus, we have received the redemption of our souls. We are in the hands of Christ and our lives are being redeemed and shaped and molded in the present by the Holy Spirit. And one day we will arrive at the glorious future. And we will be at home, redeemed forever by the Lord. So as we think of this difficult question, why is there so much suffering in this world? I hope this talk has given us answers. But more than that, it's given us a Savior and a sympathizer upon whom we can lean and from whom we can get our comfort and our peace.